Hey, it's good to be back, not just uh, in the pulpit, but actually I wasn't here last week, and I don't know if any of you noticed that, but that's okay, I'm not offended. Uh, thank you. Um, I was actually in California, in the high Sierra Plains. Oh, you got some fans for California. Uh, the reason I was there is my uncle, um, who I grew up with and next to, is, uh, living next to, close to, uh, wanted to do a, a family adventure, and he had always dreamed of taking the family and doing this cool adventure, and uh, he used to study and, and know a lot about the uh, gold rush of 19, uh, 1849, that near San Francisco and all that, you guys have heard of that, right? See, the 49ers, that's what they were all about, they were miners, and uh, he... Uh, he wanted to do this so badly, and that was, has been his life's desire. He recently bought some claims, some gold claims up there. And so he invited the whole family to go on this adventure to have a great time together. And so uh, we flew out there, Carolina and I, and I actually want to show you some pictures. I got one here. Uh, this is our family. There we go. And that's me with my gold thingy. Carolina. Uh, this is my uncle and my aunt, and uh, my brother Michael and his girlfriend Lisa, my brother Lee and his wife Nydia, and my, my uncle's daughter and husband and children right there. See, we're all in our regalia. We're ready to go and, and gold dig. And uh, listen, I'm just going to tell you some things that it takes to find gold, by the way. The first thing you do, I thought it was going to be easy, but it's not easy at all, you know. You have to, uh, you always see the easy part, the panning part, but what you have to do is you have to dig. Dig buckets and buckets and buckets and buckets of dirt. That's what you have to do. And you take these buckets and you put them through what's called a sluice. So I have another thing here. This is the sluice. And water comes up in here and you dump the buckets in here and dirt kind of comes out over here and down here. And then like the heavy gold, all the gold, gets caught in this little thing right here in these baffles. And so that's what you do. And I, I mean, I've never worked so hard, I don't think. In the last... Two months, I told Carolina, this is the hardest we worked. Everyone was sore, like the next day and the day after. We were, because we just kept carrying buckets. Now, after this, you empty this little part down here, and you put it in, go ahead to the next slide, you put it in the pans, and then you pan out the gold. So you have my brother Lee and Carolina having a great time. So, like, when, when we were, I was thinking of going out there, I'm thinking, man, I was starting to get that gold fever. You know how they call it? I'm thinking, we're going to go out there, I am going to get a chunk of gold. And I'm going to come back and I'm thinking, and then I'm going to go sell this chunk of gold because I really don't want the gold. I want the money. And I was already starting to make some plans on what I was going to do. So I was getting all, like, all caught up in this whole gold thing. And then, uh, so this is what we found after you pan. Go to the next slide. This is a finger. That's a finger. And there's the gold right there. Now, after all that digging, here's my reaction. There we go. Are you kidding me? All right, you guys look good. Listen, that could be so disappointing, right? Right? Because, uh, but here's the thing. We weren't really there for gold. We were there for the adventure. We were there to be there as a family. Sure, the goal would be cool, but we were there about, like, bonding and all this other stuff. So, but it, when I was out there, it would be easy for me to lose perspective and to forget the real reason in the face of finding gold, right? I mean, seriously, I was like thinking, I was even calculating the size of it. Like, I don't want the little nugget that they find. I want something about five pounds, because I'm thinking how much that possibly could be. Because we get lost sometimes in the possibilities, right? In the possibilities of what could be, what I could have got. And instead of becoming, having fun with my family and enjoying that time together, I could have gotten obsessed 
with finding the gold, just digging, no, leave me alone. All right, give me that. Give me the gold thingy, and I'm looking for gold, gold detector, right? And then I could have come home depressed, like it was a failure, and that all of us could have been like, wow, all we got was a flake, you know? Well, we got a couple more flakes, but really not, not much at all. And uh, we could have been depressed. We could have thought it was a complete failure. And I think um, that's what happens sometimes. We could just lose sight of the goal. And uh, I think that happens also with children's uh, sports sometimes. You ever see like the kids, little peewee baseball and stuff like that, right? I mean, they're about sportsmanship. It's about practicing and playing hard. It's about being a graceful winner and learning how to accept defeat, right? All these things are wrapped up in that. And yet sometimes it can become about winning at all costs, right? I mean, there's that certain coach or those parents that are screaming in those outfields, you know, in the, in the bleacher stands, like, kill them. And it becomes, like, it's true, I've seen it. And it becomes about winning no matter what, instead of having fun, instead of all these other things that it was supposed to be. You know, um, it comes to the point where some kids don't even get to participate, do they? Because they're just not good enough, and they're not going to help the team win. And this is what I call vision drift. That's what I call it, vision drift. But now think a minute. We all have cars. Most of you have a car, right? And um, every car needs what's called a wheel alignment. A wheel alignment, that means that all the wheels have to be pointing in the same direction. You know, if they're like off a little bit like that or they're like this, if they're not lined up on your car, then your car is going to experience this thing called drifting, right? Because it's, it's not aligned. And from time to time, you, notice, you may notice that your car is starting to pull to the right or to the left. And if you take your hand off your wheel, right, right the car is just starts taking off in a different direction. And that's because your car is not in alignment. And uh, the first indication is that you start to veer off. Is because your car is not in alignment. And uh, the same thing happens for you and me when we're not aligned with what God has given us as a vision. Now, a car experiences steering drift, but I call it what we experience is vision drift. And vision drift is when we lose alignment with our goal. There are things that compete for our vision, and they turn our heads and they cause us to drift from what God has actually called us to do. And they distract us or they make us less effective in whatever it is that God had originally intended for us. In your outline is a verse from Hebrews that says this, It's crucial that we keep a firm grip on what we've heard so that we don't drift off. This, in the book of Hebrews, he's talking about the Israelites had received all these commandments, they'd been given all this stuff, and he says, now keep a firm grip on what you've heard, what you've been told, what I've revealed to you, so that you don't drift off. And so, this is what we're talking about today, how to avoid vision drift. And if you're in, you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 5, because that's where we're going to be in a minute. But if you just joined us for today, we're in a series called Blueprint, Discover God's Vision for Your Life. And of course, it's about how to discover your vision and how to attain the vision that God has given you and make it a reality. Now, last week, Pastor Bob, in the last three weeks, he's been talking about these factors. Especially last week, he talked about vision killers, if you were here. You can get the tape at the Resource Center, if you are CD tape. Yeah. So anyway... Uh, but these things are external factors that can derail us, that can take us off our vision. But what we're going to talk about and discover today is that there's some internal things, internal factors within you and I that can cause us to drift from the vision that God has given us. And they're not giant obstacles. I mean, they're not these giant things like the car that suddenly hits a, a bump and takes off in another direction or a car comes crashing into you. These are subtle things because they come from within. We can lose sight of the vision that God has given us. I mean, just like my gold rush vacation, right? 
I could have completely lost sight of the real reason I was out there in the face of all that gold that I was going to get. Listen, our personal, uh, our own personal vision and ambition can sometimes get in the way. And this is exactly what Nehemiah is about to experience. So let's pick it up in verse 1. It says this, And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. And there were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the, ta- the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Now, yet now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren. We're all Israelites, he's saying. Our children are as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been bought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. And I became very angry when I, when I heard their outcry in these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother, so I called a great assembly against them. To this point, Nehemiah had been experiencing these external problems. Just to bring you up to speed in the story, the people of Israel had been taken over by a, uh, by a, a, a group of a nation called Babylon or Babylonians, and they took them captive, took them out of Jerusalem. And they brought them to this area uh, in, in Babylon, which now was taken over by the Persians. And they're in this city called Shushan. Shushan, say that ten times fast. And they're in this city. And there's nobody, there's very little remnant of people in Israel. And at one point, they send a bunch of people over there to rebuild the temple. And now Nehemiah is over here. And he works for the king. He's the king's cupbearer. And he hears about the fact that this city is undefended and they need a wall. And now he's like, I work for the king. I have this obstacle. How do I get over there? And the king allows him to go. Then he says, yeah, but I need money. And I need resources. And I need people. All these external factors. And then when he gets there, the, the local nations are like, don't build that city wall because if you do, you're going to rebel. We don't want you to be like a power here anymore. So they're threatening to attack while they're building the wall. So all these external factors are, are, that, he, are, that he's coming up against, he has to overcome. But now, in this chapter, Nehemiah starts to deal with these internal problems. You see, this group of people come up to him and say, hey, listen, we've been working really hard on this wall. And they come up and they say, now we've got a problem. And most of these people who had been working on the wall did that in neglect of their own land. You see, it was hard to spend day and night tirelessly. If you read last chapter with Pastor Bob, you could see they barely slept. They were taking shifts just to build the wall. So how are they going to take care of themselves? And so they come up to him and they say, listen, we're out of food and we need food, some of them say. Other ones come up to him and say, listen, in order to get food, we've had to mortgage our vineyards and our lands and our property. And so now we, got, we don't even have a way to make money. And then some of them came up to him and said, listen, we had to borrow money to pay King Artaxerxes the taxes. That was the Persian king who took taxes from everybody. And then even more of them said, because we're in such a bad state, we've had to sell our children, our daughters and sons as slaves to our very own people who bought them and then sold them again. And so they're in a big problem right now, or it's starting to get big. And he approached Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is listening to them, and Nehemiah says, listen... I, I think we're, we're, in, we're in trouble here because these people are not really focused anymore on the wall, right? They're worried about their, their families. They're worried about li- living. So all of a sudden, they begin to drift 
from the vision that God had brought Nehemiah there too. These are the people that are going to build the wall. And he's losing momentum. And if he doesn't do something soon, his vision is going to die. And so this is the first thing that you need to know. Go ahead and pull out your outline. By the way, that big verse you see actually goes under point two, just giving you a heads up. But the first thing you need to know is deal with little problems before they grow into big distractions. That's one way to cure vision drift. My wife, she loves royal poinciana trees. Those are those big ones that branch out. They have like a certain time of year. They're like orange and, or reddish like flowers. They're very beautiful and they get huge. Well, she loves the, the, that tree and her boss gave her one. And so she brought it home, and it was like in a little plastic, like uh, public shopping bag, you know. And it was like a little sapling. You guys use that word anymore, sapling. So I, I have this thing, and she gives it to me. She's like, "I love this plant." And, all right. I'm like, "Okay." She goes, "I want to plant this in the yard." I said, "All right." And I throw it down near the house, like a foot away from the house. I just put it on like it was near the door. I don't know, but it was like so. I left it there, and you know, she's like, "John, I want you to plant that." And I go, "Okay, um, I, I'll get to it." And so. Uh, it started to grow a little bit. It got to be like almost a, an inch thick and it was getting a little bit bigger. And I'm like, man, I better to move this thing. And she's like, yeah, what? you better move that to the lawn or we're going to, you know, it's, uh, we're not going to have the tree where we want it. And I, over time, six to eight months later, I had, <laughs> I had neglected it to the point where the tree, tree now, had gotten at least six inches in diameter. Literally, it was that big around, mind you, a foot from my house. It grew up past and over the roof of my house. And it was like blanketing part of the roof. It was actually tearing up some of the new, it was like disturbing the new shingles that we had on the roof. And it was becoming an issue. And like, so what I did was I called a friend of mine, Miguel Navarro, you may know him, and I said, Miguel, come over with your truck because i got to cut this tree down and haul it out of here. I couldn't even haul it away. I couldn't even put it in a barrel. It was that big. So we cut the whole thing down and out of there. Now, I guess you get some of the point here. Small things, <laughs> little problems, can grow into something big, right? They can grow into something big that's so much harder to manage. And the longer you ignore it, the more costly and the more difficult that problem becomes. Listen, finances are one of the biggest little problems people don't tend to address. Um, how many people are in debt? Let's see your hands. No, no, don't do that. Just kidding. That would be embarrassing for you, wouldn't it? I don't know who you are. Uh, there are times and seasons that are more uh, financially difficult than others in our lives. That's just going to happen. You know, we've seen that recently with recessions and jobs and stuff. That happens. But listen, if you're living in a constant state of debt, like I used to live, then you're setting yourself up for a problem, right? We're just waiting for a problem. Chuck Yeager used to say, never wait for problems. I like that saying. But like, if you're in debt right now, and then a financial crisis comes, well, now it's just compounded and made it even bigger, isn't it? Listen, I told you like about a month ago when I preached last why I came to Florida or how that happened for me. And I basically I had signed up to work at a, a, sh a shelter for one runaway teens. Excuse me, tongue tied. It was called Covenant House. And they brought me down here to Florida. But the thing was, they don't really pay you. They give you room and board and they give you like 15 bucks a week. So it's like nothing, right? I had actually planned to come a year earlier than I did. I had filled out the paperwork, I had applied, I did everything. But here was the thing. There was a small financial matter that I didn't take care of. 
And because I carried this debt and this little problem, I realized that if I was to go away and not make any money to pay that debt, I was going to get in some big trouble. So it took me a full year to work to pay it off so that then I could come down. It delayed God's vision in my life a whole year because I couldn't, I didn't take care of the little financial problem that I had. And the same thing is true for you right now. If you're in a place, there's one thing that'll stop your, your vision really fast is that you f- can't financially manage it, right? And so some of you right now are in that place. Here's what I want to do though. I'm instead of like, um, I want to assist you. So here's what you can do. Take your connection card that you have and just flip it over on the back side. And if you need counseling, we offer financial counseling. Just write financial counseling in the prayer section. We'll contact you this week. But here's, the, because here's why. Money will tell you what decisions you can and cannot make. It does that. It has a weird way of doing it. Listen to this in Proverbs 22. It says, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. You're a slave, it says. You see, what happens is when we have financial debt that we haven't taken care of, it will make your decisions for you. You see, you will not be focused on what you could do. You're going to be focused on what you have to do. I have to service this loan, just like me. I couldn't do what I wanted to do. And if we don't tackle this issue, and God calls you to do something, then you're going to have to just sit and wait for a while until you're able to take care of that situation. So if that's you, write that right down on the back, financial counseling. Listen, another area of little problems that can actually grow into big distractions are family or relationship. We all have aspirations of a great family, don't we? And none of us really sits around and says, you know what? I'm going to spend as little time as I possibly can with my family. We don't do that. But because we don't make some adjustments in our schedule when they're small, then the situation grows into something that's really big. And now we've got a big problem on our hands. You know how it is, like you have a disagreement, right? But you don't want to take care of that issue or talk about it, and then two weeks go by and you're not talking at all. That's how it happens, because we didn't deal with it when it was small. Now it's a big issue, and it's much harder to deal with. And it's the same thing when it comes with kids. Sometimes, if we don't take care of our kids, we don't discipline them when they're small. And when it's an easy matter, yeah, it's a problem, but it's a small problem. Then they grow up to be big and we have no opportunity to speak into their lives. And then it becomes this huge emergency. In the same way, if you're there right now and you're saying, you know what, I really need to take care of some of these issues in my life, and you're speaking about one of them, right on the back of your card, I need relationship counseling or marital counseling, whatever it is, because we offer counseling that's free at the church. So you don't have to wait till something is small that gets big. But here's usually what happens in our counseling ministry. People call up and it's a giant emergency. It's gotten to a point where everything is blown up. I recently met with another uh, pastor at another church to talk about their benevolence ministry. And that's for those who come and ask for money and seek things. And I said, why is it? What do you do when these people call you and they call you on the phone? They say, listen, I need your help right now. I need you to pay my rent because I'm getting kicked out tomorrow. I'm like, how did it get to the point where it's tomorrow? Why is it like right now in such a big amount? Why didn't we hear about this a month ago when it was a smaller problem, when we could have done something? And here's the thing with situations that have grown so big. We don't have a magic wand. We'll be able to counsel you, we'll be able to direct you, but we can't wave a magic wand and take it all away. That won't happen. Because whatever it did, and as long as it took to get you into that giant mess, is about how long it's going to take you to get out of the giant mess again. And so it's a process. 
And but we sometimes want quick solutions, but if we let the small thing grow into something big, it becomes something that we can't even manage. And that's why I think the Bible, Jesus even says this, it's in your outline, he says, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hands you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. He's saying, if you have a problem that's small with your brother, take care of it now. Because if you don't take care of it now while it's still small and you're able to handle it, you're going to get yourself into a situation where it's so big you can't take care of it anymore. Or it's so big it's going to cost you so much and more time and more effort. Listen, the importance of continued maintenance in our lives is huge. Every single car, every one of you who owns a car, eventually it will go out of alignment. Don't worry, it'll happen. Not because you did anything bad with the car. It's just the normal wear and tear of your car. You get it aligned every so often. You go to the mechanic, you get new tires, and say, hey, do you want alignment with that? And you're like, now you know what it is. You're like, oh, okay, maybe I need it. But that's the same thing for you and I in our lives. The same thing is true. We need maintenance. We need to take care of things. You may be saying to yourself, things are going well for me right now. But it won't remain that way. And that's why we have to take areas of our lives and maintain them. That's one of the reasons here at Calvary Fellowship, while we talk about why we promote and why we want people to be a part of, like, a couple's retreat. A lot of people say, no, I don't need a couple's retreat. My wife and I are doing fine. My husband and I are doing great. Well, you go and you keep that maintenance up so that you're not going to find yourself in a bad situation. Or that's why we have offered growth groups. At growth groups, there's a group from like almost anybody, any type of topic, and there's probably one that you're dealing with that you'd like to know a little bit more about, or maybe you have a small problem, and you can, that might grow into a big one, and you can attend that group so that you'll grow, and that you'll maintenance that issue. It's okay to have problems, but it's not okay to ignore them. If you're like me, my tendency is to wait and see if the problem works itself out, right? That's what happens, you know? My wife comes to me with an issue, like the tree, right? And I'm like... I'm like, ah, let's see, maybe some, you know, gnome will come and, yard gnome will come and move it for me. Right? You're just hoping it's going to take care of itself. But the truth is, and we all know this to be true, they rarely ever work themselves out. The longer we wait, it's just more complicated that they become. And see, what crisis is going to arise in your life. And not dealing with an issue ahead of time is only going to force you to live in crisis. And when you're living in crisis, you can't focus on anything else. You can't focus on the vision that God has given you. And so because we let the small problem grow into something big, we're now dealing with something instead of following what God would have us to do. Little problems will become big, and that's almost guaranteed. And they're going to distract you from God and the vision that He has for you. And when there is a problem, we have to address it. Don't let little problems go to the point where they're going to obscure your vision for what God has for you. And that's exactly what Nehemiah sees, and so he addresses the problem. Let's pick it up in verse 7. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, you will even sell your, own, your brethren, or shall they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, what, are you do- what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please, 
Let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also hundreds of the money and the grain and the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Now, the second fill-in in your outline is don't let ambition dilute God's passion. Don't let personal ambition dilute God's passion. Nehemiah confronted these nobles and rulers in front of everyone. You see, they were charging usury, is what he says. That means they were charging interest. You see, they would lend the money and then they were charging him an interest on that money. And he was pointing out, even in his very verses, that Nehemiah, with his own money and some of these rulers, had actually spent money, paid other nations to free up the slaves that were in those nations, the Israel slaves. So they freed them up and they get them all back and now they're actually getting the children and selling them back for money to the nations. He's like, what's going on, guys? And they, these guys, maybe it wasn't bad enough that they're taking advantage of these poor people, right? Because they're working hard, they can't take care of themselves. They're like, oh, wait a minute, we see an opportunity here. We can, we've got food, we could give that to them, and we could charge them a bunch of money. But, the, but not only are they taking advantage of these people, but this is what they're doing is actually against God's law. That first big paragraph on the front of your outline, let's read that. It says, if one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or sojourner, that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God, that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give the land of Canaan and to be your God. And if one of your brethren who dwells with you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee, and then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and shall return to his own family, and he shall return to the possession of his fathers, for they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves." Listen, he's saying money, according to the law, could be loaned, but not with interest. And they could hire a person to help so that they could make a wage, but they couldn't buy him or sell them as a slave. You see, the nobles and the rulers are a part of this big vision to build the wall. But they're involved. Instead, somehow they see an opportunity and they get sidetracked from what God had for them. Their own personal ambition starts to cause them to drift because they say, hey, we can make a buck here. And because they do that, they're trying to build their own kingdom instead of God's kingdom. It actually endangers the very vision that, that Nehemiah has. Because if these guys stop working, the wall is going to not be built. And they get caught up in it. Listen, when I grew up with two other brothers, the two that you saw there was Michael and Lee, and we're all a year apart. One year apart. So we're almost like twins, you know, when you're that age, three little boys. And like, we 
always wanted, we were always watching the other one to make sure the other one didn't get more than his share, right? I felt sorry for my grandmother when she would cut cake at cake at dessert time, okay? Because she would lay three pieces of cake on the table, we'd crowd around, I'm serious, I think we probably pulled out rulers, and we would look to see which was the biggest piece. I mean, we would inspect them up and down, which has more frosting, because we didn't want the other guy to get the biggest piece. We wanted the biggest piece. We didn't want them to get something we didn't get. That's like, that's us. That's human nature. That's just who we are. It's the thing inside of us. Listen, along the way to fulfilling your vision, opportunities will arise. Each one of us has inside of us these desires. I think that's why God makes covetous, covet, coveting <laughs> one of his top ten. It's one of the ten commandments. Thou shalt not covet. Because that's how serious it is. That's how much it is on inside of all of us. And while we're on our, our road, our vision to accomplish what God has for us, opportunities are going to arise. Maybe the opportunity to get that giant house in Coral Gables. Or the opportunity suddenly to make some really serious money. Or maybe it's a, some kind of relationship. But pursuing them may cause us to drift from the vision that God has for you and I. And our personal ambitions can get in the way. The Bible tells us that we can't serve our personal ambitions and God's vision for our lives. Listen to the way it's put here. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Listen, eventually either your ambition is going to win out or God's passion in you is going to win out. Not, you can't have both. That's what he's saying. See, it's a subtle thing that happens. We begin to believe the ambition and somehow think that it will get us where God wants us or we can do both, but eventually we find we can only do one. You see, when we do that, we start to lose sight of who we're actually serving because we start to serve our kingdom and not God's. Maybe you signed up to serve God or did something, but what happened was, over time, you forgot who you were serving. You know, with time, everything becomes a little bit disenchanted, doesn't it? And so we get involved in something, and over time, as we're moving in that direction, we somehow it stopped becoming about serving God, because that's why we started it. We wanted to serve Him, and it became more about our convenience and our own comfort. And because it wasn't working out anymore, we say, well, no, it's not about God's kingdom anymore. And we forget. We get sidetracked by our personal desires. In Colossians, it says this, Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. No matter who you're serving, he says, really, you're serving God and we should act like that. We should work like that. Listen, there won't be anything worth pursuing in your life that won't cause and cost you anything. Everything that's worth pursuing is going to cost you something and it's going to cause you to have to sacrifice. That's just the way it is. God is going to put a passion in your heart. He is. Every single one of you, God's going to put a passion in your heart. But there's going to be a constant battle between your ambition and your desires and that passion. That's what happens. It's what the Bible calls our flesh. You ever hear that term, our flesh? The Bible says that the flesh wars against the Spirit. The things that we desire are going to war against God's Spirit and what He has called us to do. And it's going to be for all of us. We're all going to struggle there. Every single one of us. 
And so this thing that was common to these guys, the rulers and stuff, is common to you and me. That the opportunities on our path will arise and we have to decide and understand, because it's only you who can understand this, is whether it's bringing you toward God's vision or not. You know, I think it's pretty interesting. Nehemiah makes him swear an oath. That's how I think serious it is when it comes to it. He's like, these guys might go back on this little thing, they said. So he shakes out his garment, like where he capes everything. And he's like, y'all, you know, their wallet and all their goods, you know, all their valuables. He's like, he shakes that out and he goes, let you guys be shook out like that. He even feels like a curse if you guys go back on your word. Because he knows how serious it is. He knows the nature that you and I have. He knows that this is a struggle between you and I. Listen, it's a personal thing that only you can know. I can't tell you whether you are on your path of ambition or God's. Only you know that. Each one of us has desires. We need, it's the struggle that we all have because we want to take care of our families. We want to provide for them. We want to provide for ourselves. But there is some line somewhere that only you know, and it's only between you and God, whether it's on the track to the vision that he's placed in your heart and the passion that he's given you, or it's your personal desires. It's one of those things that is very subtle, but we have to monitor. It's difficult to navigate sometimes. And that's why you and I need to be in constant communi communion with God and communication with Him. And that way He's able to direct us and make those turns as we need to before we subtly drift way off the track. Let's uh, read verse 14 and finish this. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the uh, 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of sil silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who came from, to us from uh, the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me, and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet, in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions, because the bondage was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good according all, to all that I have done for this people. The third thing in your outline is this. Stay away from compromise that hinders progress. Stay away from compromise that hinders progress. Nehemiah sits here and he, li he lists this whole thing um, of all the stuff that he's been doing. And I think it's pretty interesting. He's the governor there. And he has a right, if he wants, to tax everybody there. He has a right to tax them so that his household can be provided for. And so that he can uh, serve all these meals that he's having. And here, he's entertaining 150 people a day. Some of them are the Jewish people that live there. Some of them are people from surrounding nations. 150 a day. I mean, I look at the thing. It was an ox and sheep and fowl, and that, you know, chickens. All this stuff he's given. he's cooking all this stuff, he's making all this stuff, but he's like, I'm not taking it from the people because that would lay a big burden on them. Instead, what I'm doing is I'm paying for it myself. He had total right to do it. It was in, within his rights to do this. You know, I look at Nehemiah and I admire him from this because nobody can accuse him for taking advantage of the people. I mean, maybe if he was taxing them, right? Maybe if he was taxing them, they could say, yeah, well, we're doing this, but what, you're taxing them, you're one of us, why are you taxing them? It's making it hard. 
You know, it's bad enough they have to pay King Artaxerxes, but they can't because he stayed so far away from the line of compromise. He could have been right there, and it was, again, it was in his full right, but he says, you know what, I'm way over here, so there is no compromise, I'm not even near it. You know, as a leader, uh, this gives him so much influence among the people, doesn't it? In our growth group that we had this week, we asked this question, we were talking about influence, and it was, why do some people, some leaders, have influence and some people don't? And you know, it's not the money or the position or their charisma that gives them the influence, it will ultimately boil down to their own character. That means that their actions match their words. Listen, none of us were happy when uh, the foreclosure banks, right? When all the CEOs got bonuses, right? We were angry enough that they didn't get the cut. They should have got pay cuts. We're, we, they got bailed out with our money. They didn't get penalized for it. Instead, they got bonuses. Right? How angry did that make you and I feel? Because they weren't even on the compromise line. They, they had fallen over that line. Just like these guys, the nobles, they weren't on the compromise line. They were all the way over. And they couldn't even say anything. It was hard for the nobles to speak a word against Nehemiah. And that's why it said in the verses that we, let, we, we, we spoke about, they couldn't say a word to him. There was nothing that they could say. Because he stayed so far away. He tried to honor God in everything that he did. That he wasn't even close to the line of compromise. Now, whether you consider yourself a leader here or not, though I believe that every one of us is, there is a line of compromise for you and I. It's called sin. Sin is the line of compromise for you and I. And here's the thing. We all have our weaknesses. We do. Every single one of us has them. We all have certain temptations in certain areas of our lives, and each one of us is different. And each one of us, even Pastor Bob has temptations. And each, Pastor Bob has weaknesses, or any of the guys that are up here on the stage, and I do too. And we all have these areas that can threaten to consume us. This is what it said of sin. It's a cool quote. It says, Since sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That's the thing about sin sometimes. We can get involved in something. We kind of straddle the line. We fall over. And then, you ever been caught in a place like that before? And that sin becomes that all-consuming thing that that's all you really can think about. That's the thing that you're dealing with. Now, God's vision is way over here, but you've got so involved in this line of compromise that now you can't even see straight. These nobles couldn't even see the vision anymore. They, I'll tell you why they couldn't see it, because it was jeopardizing the vision that they had. That what they were doing was jeopardizing the vision. So they somehow lost track. They had drifted slightly and before you knew it, they couldn't even see it anymore. And that's what sin does for you and me. Maybe you're new to this thing called Christianity. And you're not sure what God has called you to do. But God is going to speak a vision to you. And maybe that vision today is just, you're here. And God has called you to be sitting here in this audience for some reason or another. But you know it was God. And God is inviting you on a journey. But I want to let you know that there's not going to be anything that hinders you more than sin. And God doesn't say, these are sins because I want you to stay away from them. God says, these are sins because they're going to keep you from me. And that's what happens. The line of compromise keeps us from God and His vision. And God says, no, don't do those because I want you next to me. I want you on the path that leads to me. And that's the lesson here from Nehemiah, is to stay as far away from the thing that is going to hinder you 
Listen to how it's written in Hebrews. It says this, Strip down, start running, and never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how He did it, because He never lost sight of where He was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God, He could put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever. Like Jesus, He says, He was like that. Jesus stayed so far away from sin that He never lost sight of what God wanted for Him. And He says, Nehemiah, this example, Nehemiah is doing the exact same thing. He's staying so far away from the line that he isn't going to, it's not getting muddy for him. It's not getting a blurred vision. He's not drifting. When it comes to the thing that God has called you to do, the vision he has put in your heart, no matter how great or how small it is, one of the things that can hinder us the most is what's inside of us. It's us. We're the ones sometimes that can keep us away from what God has for us. The thing that's inside of us can cause the vision drift. All three of the things that we talked about can cause it um, and cause us to lose our perspective. Letting the little problems grow into something bigger because we didn't take care of it. Pursuing our own personal ambitions. Or walking the line of compromise when it comes to sin. All of these things. And they're the inner things. And that's what's so difficult about them because it's us. And they can wreck the vision that God has for you. Here's the thing about vision drift. It's really subtle. We don't really start off that way. We don't start off saying, you know what? God's vision is here, but I'm heading here. We don't. It just starts off with a subtle drift. Just like the car that's losing its alignment. Just slight. Just a little, just enough that if we were to let go, eventually we would find ourselves in a different place. If you were to jump on a plane from Miami to Havana, Cuba. If you were going to go there, right? You could be off by a degree. Because it's what, 90 miles away? Maybe 190 miles away? You get up in that plane, the guy would look down, you're off by a degree, but it's stretched out pretty wide. So by the time you got over there, you're getting over the Caribbean, you'd look down and you would see, oh, wait a minute, I just got to turn a little bit and I can hit right where I need to be. But if you got on a plane from Miami to Iceland and you're a degree off, by the time you traveled those thousands of miles, you're not even going to see it. You're going to be lost somewhere over Atlantic. That's the way it is with vision drift. We don't mean to go that way, and we're only a little bit, but by the time we get to where we think we were supposed to be, we have totally lost sight of where God wanted us to be. That's why I'm going to repeat Hebrews. It says it's crucial that we keep a firm grip on what we have heard so that we don't drift off. The thing that God has placed in your heart, the calling or whatever it is that God has placed for you, whatever that next step is, wherever you're going, we've got to hold on to it. We've got to hold on to it. We've got to remember what it is and we've got to focus on that vision and head straight toward it. You may be thinking right now, this sounds almost impossible because you're saying, I'm the enemy. It's inside of me and I don't even know how to deal with some of these things. Listen, that's part of the Christian life. No one said it would be easy. No one said filling God's, fulfilling God's vision will be easy for you. It certainly wasn't for Nehemiah, but he just kept focused. Listen, you may have heard this verse before. It's not in your outline, but it will be on the screen. 
you've probably heard it, but listen, it's from Jeremiah. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet that lived kind of in between. The Jewish people lived and their kingdom existed, and then the Babylonians come and take them away. Right? They go to Babylon, most of the people, and they leave Jerusalem with just a remnant of people. And Jeremiah is one of those remnants. And he sees the destruction of the city, he's there, and he's crying out to the Lord, and he's like, when are we going to be restored? When are you going to forgive the people of Israel? What's going to happen? And this prophet, this is the very verse that comes to him in that moment. Listen, I'm going to read a little bit more of the context, though. Listen carefully. It says, he says this, this is what God says to him. After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, this is the verse, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call on me and I will go and pray and, and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. Nehemiah has this prophecy from God, and the guy who's fulfilling it is Nehemiah right now. The vision is given to Jeremiah, and he says the vision. And now Nehemiah has the vision, and God is starting to fulfill it. The very thing where Nehemiah, Jeremiah thought it was impossible. What is, everything is, is impossible. There's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that we can do as a people to accomplish your vision, God. And yet, God brings it to pass in the very Scripture verses that we're reading in the life of Nehemiah. You see, we, you, me, I, we don't have what it takes to fulfill God's vision. We don't. We don't. We're not good enough. In the sense that we don't have enough power, we don't have enough strength, we don't have enough vision, but God does. The point is that God does. And the only way a vision that God gives you can be accomplished is because He does it. But here's the thing, we have to do our part and He'll do His. So the things that we've learned about ourselves today, we need to focus on and try to be like those things. We have to try to accomplish them. You work on your part and God will work on His. You do what you need to do, and God will bring that vision to pass in your life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, I thank you that you're a God who works through so many people, giving each of us so many different visions. Lord, I'm glad that you're a God who's able to accomplish every single one of them. Lord, help us to draw closer to you. Lord, to do the part that we know to do so that you might complete the vision in our lives. Lord, give us strength and give us courage and give us wisdom on that journey. Lord, I thank you for that and I pray that you would bless everyone here today. Lord, I pray that you would be fulfilling visions in our midst, in this congregation, in these people, the ones who hear my voice right now. Lord, because we know that you're capable. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.